Ethical disclaimer. While Diana and I are psychologists, we aren't your psychologists. Reverse psychology, while hopefully fun and informative, is not a replacement for therapy. If you're interested in speaking with a therapist, please check out some of the links in our episode description. Also, Diane and I are both deeply passionate about psychology. Common with things you love, we may get frustrated, but at the end of the day, we hold sincere respect for psychology and psychologists. Now, on with the show. Just say what comes to mind. What comes to mind. Um, shit. Welcome back to Reverse Psychology, the one and only podcast that you will ever need or want or listen to. I am Dr. Mike, and that silence lets you know that Dr. Diana is out of town this week. And after some talks and tries and deliberations about whether or not we can even manage to do something over Skype, I have made the decision to just do what I'm going to call empty chair therapy. What's that? Empty chair therapy. This is a technique that is used to be done really in psychology, not as much anymore because it feels weird. Essentially, the idea of empty chair therapy, you sit in a chair, there's an empty chair across from you. You imagine that a person you're struggling with is in that chair and you speak your mind to that chair. And then you get up, you sit down in the other chair, and then you act like the other person responding to what you just said and you go back and forth and back and forth like you've lost your mind it's an actual effective therapy it's actually it's interesting because it's kind of gone out of favor because it feels a little hokey but there's actually some research now on vr therapy virtual reality therapy that actually does this exact same thing so there's a program out there now that's getting tested where basically you go into the vr space They scan you and what you're wearing and how you look and things like that. And then you pop yourself into the VR world and you're in a therapy room. And in this version of it, you're on a chair, you're across from Freud, who's probably like smoking a cigar and there's like a little bit of cocaine residue on his nostril. And essentially he prompts you. He's like, ah, see what has brought you in here. And then you talk, you just say what what is going through your mind and why you're you're here and why you're in therapy with freud and then when you're done you indicate on a button you you click it a little bit and then the scene freezes and you flip positions and now you're in freud's body which is probably always freud's dream is having a patient inside of him and you then observe yourself how you're dressed how you look basically a video of yourself talking back to you and saying what you just said so you're actually listening to what you're going through and then you get the opportunity to respond however you think Freud would respond or a good therapist would respond. Because it's this interesting thing where we have such a hard time giving ourselves feedback to tell ourselves what to do and to follow through on it. It's, it's so much easier just to talk to our friends and be like, Becky, you gotta leave him. But it's harder for ourselves to see that and to do it. And so basically the VR world makes it a little bit easier to do this empty chair therapy where you yourself are giving yourself feedback and giving yourself advice. Uh, That was a very long-winded explanation of something I'm actually probably not going to be doing today because I don't have enough chairs around the table to do that. But I do want to record. I wanted to get something out this week because I love you all and I miss you all when we're not recording and interfacing with everyone. And so 
I wanted to get something out and it's just going to be me. And already I feel like this is that part of the Mark Marin podcast that I fast forward through where he's at a table in his garage, just angry, uh, just rambling about nonsense. And I can already hear people unsubscribing. Please don't. So first thing I want to do on this update on this empty chair therapy is I want to do our five-star reviews. To our five-star reviews while I'm pulling them up. I actually thought (laughs) I was thinking about other things I could be doing for this individual episode. And (laughs) Diana said that it'd be a good idea for me to just cut together all the things that I think were funny from the first like 12 episodes and then just play those like a clip show, which is a pretty bold thing to do a clip show within the first like two months of your of your show. But I thought it'd be really funny to do a commentary episode where it's you listening to me talking over myself and just laughing at all of my old jokes. Uh, I'm not going to do that, though, though, because it sounds like it's going to be really difficult. So looking at the five-star reviews, we have a bunch. We're actually still batting a thousand with five-star reviews. Thank you so much. I love you all. We have two new five-star reviews. This one from Teg11304 which is a charming little name. It says, such a fun podcast. I love listening to this podcast. Diana and Mike are hysterical. and I love that they bring humor combined with psychology. The podcast will make you laugh and also teach you something new about the mind and psychology. It's worth subscribing to and listening to. Kiss and hug, kiss and hug, kiss. But the extras are kisses, right? It's like two lips pressing. The O is like a hug. Thank you, Tag. We hug and kiss you too. The other one, the next newest one, another five star from I'm a Cray or I'm a C Ray. I am a C R A Y. As a teacher, I always try to make the material I'm teaching fun and enjoyable so that my students don't realize they've been learning something until it's too late. I'm a Cray. You're, you are Cray. That's what reverse psychology is to me. Oh, Diane and Mike are hilarious. And enjoy a good tangent as much as anyone, sometimes a little bit too much. But I always take something away from each episode that enriched my understanding of a topic I love. I think it is. It says a love, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to assume that you love the topic. Thanks, Dynamike. No, no, no. Thank you, McCray. Thank you. updates what diana what have you been up to and then this is the part where we're just going to talk over each other because we're all so excited but it's just me and you're going to hear what it's like to be uninterrupted which actually actually terrifies me because one thing that you guys don't hear is that all the stuff i cut out from the podcast every week it always starts with diana saying please cut this out and then when i listen back to it i'm like oh shit yeah she's right i should probably cut that out so i'm really afraid of what what's gonna be launching so i'm, I'm trying really hard to self-filter and not say anything that's just like gross or really inappropriate updates the house has been tented we are done uh, I was bummed the tenters. They just like draped the tent across all of our plants. Most of them died, which was a good excuse to go to Wilcox Nursery in, in uh, Indian Rocks, Florida, to get a whole bunch of new plants. So jokes on you, because my plants are bigger and better than ever. Um, but it looks great. No more termites. Uh, I can sleep soundly because there's no mice in the walls. It was gross for the first day because I felt like I could smell death. I don't think I could. 
but I felt like I could. And it really kind of freaked me out and bummed me out. I felt like I could hear the ghosts of all the critters that died in here. But that's, that's gone now. My dogs are currently in a dog fight. They're both like nine pounds, so it's like a non-lethal dog fight. And they're doing it voluntarily. So all the sounds you're hearing are just one of the dogs making the sounds for both of the dogs. This, this podcast has just become something to put on in the background of your house when you feel lonely and you want to feel like you have a roommate that just talks too loudly to nobody. They're cranky because they miss Diana. Um, we're all a little cranky. While the house attended, I stayed in an Airbnb in the neighborhood. It was nice. It was very cute. It was a very nice place. It had window units for AC, which I mean, I'm not bougie or anything, but that's, it, it made it very humid. So it smelled bad. Not really bad, but like a little bad. And the water also kind of smelled bad. And so uh, I had the Airbnb from Sunday to Wednesday. That's a, that's a number of days. But I didn't stay there Sunday night. I just moved my stuff in. That way Monday morning I can drop off the dogs, drop off my stuff and go to work. Sunday, I was here. I showered. I did all my normal stuff. Monday morning, I took a shower, went to work, came home. And then I was like, ah, this water kind of stinks. I don't want to take another shower. And so Tuesday morning, got up to get to work. And I was like, ah, I can move back into my house tomorrow. I feel like this water is going to make me dirtier. So I, I didn't take a shower on, on Tuesday. Get home. Yeah, that was my life. Wednesday, I don't tell anyone, but I called out of work. Spent the day at a dog park with the dogs waiting for the house tent to get cleared so I can go back in without any poisons in the air. And I was checking out of the Airbnb and they gave me this very nice note. They're like, thank you so much for staying. Uh, here's some quick and easy instructions for how to check out. And one, one of the only things they said was, for all of the towels you used, just leave them in the bathtub. And I was like, that's nice. That's a nice low key thing. I've been in places where they're a little bit more harsh with like what to do with them. So it's nice that they were like, just, just leave them. We'll get them. But there were a few key words in there. One was all, all of the towels that you used. And just the assumption, like, yeah, just, just leave them. I, they're probably way too much for you to clean anyways. And I didn't use a single goddamn towel the entire time I was there. And so I I got really weirded out where I'm like, I don't want them to review my stay and say like, yeah, he was nice. He was quiet. I, I, he's gross though. He did not shower once. So what I did was I, uh, I grabbed one of the towels and I soaked the towel in the, in the sink and then I, I wrung it out so it felt damp. And then I just left that one because I didn't want these strangers to think that I didn't shower in their stinky Airbnb. And that is the lesson of the week about neuroticism. Feels cocky to want to brag about my own week to the ether. So one other experimental segment that I want to try for this empty chair therapy session is a little session called I Heard It Through the Grapevine. Welcome to I Heard It Through the Grapevine, where Dr. Mike goes through the hot goss in the world of psychology. What's that you say? Hot goss? Oh, you know, those rumors, those little uh, soft whispers in the hallway, things you have heard, drama in the world of psychology. No, really, these are just some stories that I want to talk about that really don't fit in any other topic, and I don't feel like Diane and I could fill a 45-minute episode about just this thing. And so I'm going to talk about it now. 
This week's, I heard it through the grapevine, I want to talk about a little man named William Marston. William Marston was a psychologist more prominent in the early 20s. How would you have known this guy? A couple things that he was famous for. Early 20s, he actually created the systolic blood pressure test because he had this idea that the connection of emotion and blood pressure. What he said was uh, when his wife got mad or excited, her blood pressure seemed to climb. And he really wanted a way to objectively measure how pissed off his wife was getting. And so he developed his blood pressure test and started doing all these experiments in blood pressure and biological readings as it related to emotion. This led to the creation of the polygraph exam. So William Marston's early work on the lie detector test. And he was a big guy. He like loved, he actually, so early on, he was teaching at the American University and then at Tuft University. And then for a while, he was just this guy that was going around the country just trying to promote the polygraph test. He was doing a lot of pop writings. He was in a Gillette commercial being like, I love Gillette razors. I'd never lie. Uh, the funny thing is that the, his early polygraph was kind of garbage anyways. Uh, 19, 1923, he actually got in some hot water because he failed to get his lie detector test admitted as evidence in court. And at that point, it was found that this lie detector is not reliable at all. And so it was a big blow to him trying to get rich off of his lie detector. But anyways, mid-20s at this point. So he's a big name guy. He's doing a lot of stuff. He is teaching at Tufts University, 1925, where he meets a young student named Olive Byrne. Olive Byrne was the niece of a feminist and birth control activist, Margaret Sanger. Yes, that Margaret Sanger. Quickly after meeting, Marston makes Byrne his lab assistant. He said, you're smart. You're a good student. Why don't you, why don't you come help me out with some of these experiments? Let's see how we can get that blood pressure up. And then like, Pretty much first lab meeting, he starts having an affair with her. Now, most of my rumor has it, <laughs> not rumor has it, heard it through the grapevines, are going to be, <laughs> in some way, are going to feature some old dude having an inappropriate affair with a young female student. It's, the, oh, the only shocking thing about this story is that it didn't happen at Hopkins. It happened at Tufts University. And so, 1925, they start this relationship. After a couple of years, Marsden finally tells his wife, Elizabeth. So, at this point, Elizabeth, Elizabeth Marsden is also hugely influential in William's work in blood pressure and lying and a lot of his research. He doesn't give her credit for shit, but... Later on, as people start to cite his work, he, they actually start to slip in her name and, and, and give her a lot of credit because she was actually like the brains of the operation. Uh, like Mid to late 20s, she finds out that he's having an affair. She's like, what the fuck, man? And he, he's like, oh, shit. Think fast, William. What do I do? So he tells her, baby, you know I got a lot of love. I got too much love for one woman. It's either you, me, and her, or it's nothing. And so she just like walks off and she walks basically into the ocean, never to be seen again. But then halfway there, turns around and goes, you know what? That's not the worst thing in the world. So she comes back and she's like, all right, I'm in. Let's make this triangle work. And so uh, around 1927, Olive is a PhD student at Tufts with William Marsden. Totally cool. Nothing weird going on there. But then he encourages her to drop out of the PhD program to raise his child that he sired with Elizabeth. Very empowering. On a happy note, a couple years later, he impregnates her too because he doesn't want to play favorites. 
Already, this is a pretty drama-filled thing. He's sleeping with a student. He brings her into his home. Now they have this triangle relationship. It doesn't stop there because William and Olive, and I think Elizabeth, I'm not seeing a lot of evidence that Elizabeth is into this, but at, I, at least William and Olive were just super into sex parties. This was a big thing. So I found, found some reports that William had an aunt that lived, that lived in Massachusetts near Tufts where he would just borrow her house to throw these like sex orgies in uh it'd be like a lot of bdsm and this is really where william marsden starts to experiment with both bondage and being dominated and he's like this is the bee's knees because mind you this is the 20s and that's how people talked back then there is the bee's knees now see stop on my balls how about a little looky-loo so 1928 because he's still in the scene his uh his girlfriend just dropped out of phd school he's boning a bunch of people and he writes he writes a book called the emotions of normal people and he he dedicated it to his student to uh to olive and uh there's two big things that he did in this book thing one was he elaborated on this thing called the disc theory d-i-s-c dominance influence steadiness conscientiousness so essentially he was really trying to push he's like the shit with the polygraph it's not really paying off i got some research on this personality theory this is where I'm going to make my money. It, it, it didn't really pan out that much. But also in the book, he starts talking about and expounding on the normalcy of a kinky lifestyle, how it's heavily rooted in biology. And it, the whole thesis is like, hey, man, we all have a freak flag. Let's let it fly. If my aunt's house is rocking, do come a knocking because it's a sex party up in here. That November, shortly after the book was published, Marsden married Byrne, which he, he made her an honest concubine. and. Uh, in lieu of a ring, they felt that that was very traditional and uh, both oppressive and not oppressive enough. He actually had her wear these very large gold cuffs around each of her wrists. Now, you might say, huh, that imagery sounds familiar. Giant gold cuffs around a strong female figure that was probably scantily clad. Well, you might be onto something because 1940, so this is eh, about 10 years later that right? Yeah, it's about 10 years later. Byrne has now found a job writing for a magazine called The Family Circle. All around this time, Marsden has worked his way away from more academic pursuits and is doing more pop psychology writing. He's doing a lot of articles and he's he's diving into being a, a feminist. He is all about strong women. He has all these articles about how the future is female, how the ideal leader is a female, all these things. He is going deep into it and writing a lot a lot about this 1940 elizabeth uh olive Byrne, ironically writing under a male pen name because as as progressive as they were trying to be you still had to work within the rules of that time she interviews marsden and marsden is doing this whole interview about comics of the time at the time there was batman there was superman i actually don't know if there's batman and superman there was highly i think i don't there's at least superman but there was highly violent, masculine, hyper-masculine comics, much like you would see today. And he was asserting that uh, comics are very influential, but the problem is they're so focused on aggression and power and dominance, and there's no love in there. And he was saying that the true way to conquer someone is through love. It's a female way of dominance. And being a male-focused genre, you're just missing this whole angle. So one of the editors from a slightly failing comic magazine uh, that 
was just about to merge with another slightly failing comic magazine to make the successful DC comic, contacted Marsden and said, man, we loved all that freaky shit you were talking about. Because it was the 40s and that's how they talked then. And they said, we would love for you to do a comic book. And so he said, yeah, this would be, be great. And that is how Wonder Woman was born. Most of you, I don't know, I'm not going to say most of you. Some of you have probably seen the latest Wonder Woman movie. Fantastic movie. I thought it was really good. Uh, she is a very strong, powerful figure. Probably one of the only few good DC comic movies out there. If you want your mind blown, read the early 1940s Wonder Woman comics. They... Are- <laughs> Some, sometimes people have this hard time believing that the woman, Wonder Woman character was created by this like real kinky sex dude because they see the newest movie, even watching the, the Wonder Woman TV show. No, the, I was looking before this in preparation. I was looking at old Wonder Woman comics and it, every, her kryptonite, her weakness was bondage. So this was his, his whole thing was, he had these two stories about bondage. Story one was, it was a metaphor for in the comics, was a metaphor for all the oppression that females face. So it was like all this bondage that she was expressing was a way to show the inability to vote, a way to show the inequality in the workplace, all these things. But he also went on the record to say this, the only hope for peace is to teach people who are full of pep and unbound force to enjoy being bound. Only when the control of self by others is more pleasant than the unbound assertion of self in human relationships, can we hope for a stable, peaceful human society? <laughs> only until only until you learn to like just being tied up and an old man watching you, we will never have peace in the world. And these early comics were loaded with Wonder Woman chained up, Wonder Woman tied down. I saw one where it was these like six foot tall fat babies one of them was tying her up with a rope while the other one was whipping her. All while she's wearing just like the most scantily clad thing. It's this, it's wild. It's both empowering and uh, not empowering at the same time. It is a wild backstory. Uh, Wonder Woman was coming far away. But if you really want just like to see both, it's just like this, it's this crazy attempt to be radical while still in the bounds. And you can also see, looking at the early Wonder Woman, how it kind of got bastardized later on, where if you ever read like X-Men or or really any comics with female characters, their costumes are ridiculous. It's like, have you ever tried to fight crime in high heels and a bikini? It's not going to work. Give them some sensible flats, a very form-fitting sports bra so they can move quickly with confidence, and you're going to fight crime better. But I think early on, his whole approach was like, this is empowering. This is going to be great for them. And creepy dudes were like, oh, this is going to be great for us. Seven years after Wonder Woman started, Marsden died extremely abruptly of cancer, but he he and basically the last six to seven years of his life he he did no more stuff with, with any academia. He just did Wonder Woman, and a lot of his ideas kept popping up. I mean, I mean obviously the ideas of empowerment and feminism. The lasso of truth was basically his attempt to be like, yeah, remember that polygraph thing? Yeah, that's still a thing. Um, so a lot of his early stuff kept popping up in it uh but he died 1947 the the beautiful thing is elizabeth and olive continued to live together until the mid 80s 
40 more years, Olive lived with Elizabeth, co-parenting the two children. Olive died in the mid-80s at, I think, like 85. Uh, Elizabeth died in 1992 at the age of 100. Um, she was the strong one in the relationship. Isn't that crazy? Anyways, okay, so that has been the first, hopefully of, of only a few. I miss Diana. But that's been the first of the empty chair therapy. Hey, Mike, what do we got coming up? Let me tell you, coming up, Diana's going to be back very soon. And when she comes back, we're going to dive right back in. We're going to do a follow-up to the last episode where I'm going to talk a little bit more about willpower and cognitive resources and basically how do we do things when we feel like we don't want to do them. Diana also found a really cool book about B.F. Skinner and a lot of the crazy experiments he did. So I think we're going to do a couple of crazy experiment ones. And we're looking to expand our studio again. We had just moved into the Giddens recording studio and we're going to possibly make the leap to a more professional arena in the, the Tampa Public Library which is very NPR of us, but they have more equipment. They have the ability for multiple mics. And so we are going to move in there soon so we can have some guests, have some people come in, try to teach us. I, I wish them luck. Diane and I are terrible students, but I would love to get some very smart people in here talk about some very cool stuff. If you have any questions or comments, please, please, please send us a message right on our Facebook page. Email us at rev.psychcast at gmail.com. R-E-V dot P-S-Y-C-H-C-A-S-T. I already got one awesome idea from the email about doing couples therapy. Thank you so much. We are definitely going to do that. And I think we have we have a good friend coming in that's going to help us with that one soon. We have a couple other great ideas, things like using psychedelics to treat depression. We have a psychiatrist friend that's agreed to come in and talk about that. Uh, we have a lot of ideas on cognitive dissonance uh, with politics ramping up. I want to talk about that. We have a lot of cool stuff coming up. You guys have been amazing. You guys have been so supportive. You've made this so, so much fun. And I really genuinely hope you guys enjoy this and you keep listening and you keep subscribing. If there's anything we can do to make this more enjoyable, please. Um, I know I keep saying it, but t-shirts are coming. I just need Diana to help me because I can't operate the iron alone. And uh, we got stickers and yeah, okay. Well, Diana's not here, so it's just you and me, but love you, bye. So essentially, he, he was saying that only until you learn to come to being bound up. That's gross. I'm going to cut that out. Delete that. Delete that. All right, delete that. Um, any other news? Uh, no. No.